0: cop out, to compromise, to take things into his own hands, to disregard God's instructions to stay in Israel, to disregard God's instructions or God's promises that that he would take care of him, bring him to the throne, disregard God's faithfulness to him so far. And having disregarded God and his uh, word, he was left to his own resources, coming up with his own solutions, finding his own Way out, and the result in his life was disaster. Lost the respect of his men, lost his respect for himself. His behavior began to get more and more hypocritical, more and more destructive. See what happened was he went and lived among the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. And at first it seemed like this solution worked. Uh, the pressure was off, Saul wasn't chasing him, but the problems that replaced that pressure drew David deeper and deeper into compromise, into deception, into hypocrisy. He uh, began lying to Achish, the Philistine king that was giving him protection. And I think somewhat in an effort to justify his behavior, to, uh, to convince himself that he was doing God's will, standing up for God, he began to attack the uh, nations around, the cities around. But his his manner, the way he conducted himself, began to get very uh, ruthless, heartless, brutal. He no longer reflected God's character in the way he did what he did. He'd wipe out entire cities of women and children just to cover up his deception. And the impact he was having on his men was very destructive. They began to move in the same direction that he was moving. They began to be influenced by the uh, uh, the idolatry of the Philistines. They lost all confidence in David's leadership, at one point, they even contemplate stoning him to death. David uh, put his family at risk. One time when he was out maintaining his hypocrisy, the enemy came and took his entire family away into captivity. But worst of all, David cut himself off from God. He tried to, uh, to, to make up for that by focusing on his activities for God, by being strong for God, fighting God's battles, being tough for God, thinking, I think, that that uh, made him a good Christian. But his heart was a long ways from God. His ears were closed off to God. And his spirit dried up like a corpse left out in the desert sun. This morning we're going to look at a psalm, Psalm 69, where David talks about what this felt like. It shares some of his sense of guilt, some of his his fear and his hurt. But this psalm also shows us David's way back, his way out of where he had gotten himself, his way back to God. Let me tell you a parable. Consider the situation of a young college student who was very zealous for God. He, uh, in fact, even considered himself somewhat of a champion for God on campus. He would speak out boldly in the classroom and debate people in the quad. But his manner was always very harsh. His debating style was very confrontive, even brutal. Other uh, Christians kind of attributed that to his personality or some to immaturity or, 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 or overzealousness for God. Uh, None of them realized that this was a a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem. It wasn't until it became known that he had an ongoing sexual relationship with a woman on campus that what was really happening in his heart became known. See, what had happened was this uh, young man had come to this school struggling with lust, but depending on God, turning to God for strength and help and forgiveness and restoration and keeping engaged with God in that process. But one day, a young woman in his dorm, he didn't even know her very well, came to his room, wanted to talk. Took her in, and it very quickly became clear that she wanted more than to talk. Well, he had no intention of sleeping with her, But he didn't want to ask her to leave either. He was enjoying the flirtation. And while the two of them were sitting on the bed talking, his uh, non-Christian roommate came in and looked at them. And immediately he jumped up, ushered the young lady out, all embarrassed, guilty. And his reaction at that point is very interesting. His first response was to say, thank you, God, for rescuing me. God delivered him out of what could have been a a big mistake. But then along with that was a real profound sense of weariness. Just a sense of, I hate that I have to deal with this. And there was a tinge of resentment toward God. That he had to struggle at all, and the, the, his embarrassment was mixed with with, with with resentment. And over the next couple of days, that resentment grew and began to eat at him. His struggles uh, in the area of lust continued to to increase. His anger at God increased, and he just flat felt worn out. Didn't want to struggle anymore, so he gave in. Went down to the local store, bought a pornographic magazine. Felt like this was a fair compromise. After all, he wasn't sleeping with anybody. And this did lessen the struggle, at least at first. And he didn't even feel too bad spiritually. Felt like this was okay. This was working out. He'd found a solution. But as time went on, and he got more and more involved in an addiction toward pornography, he grew more and more distant from God. In order to make up for it, he became more zealous in his standing up for God in class and on campus. More aggressive in the way he confronted, quote, the enemies of God, the non-believers. But he knew in his heart that he was empty, that what he was doing wasn't right. Yet he felt like he was trapped. The deeper he got in, the more he felt like he was drowning and there was no way out, no one he could turn to. Unfortunately, it didn't stop there. His involvement with pornography led to a series of relationships that were immoral, and eventually to an ongoing relationship with one of the Christian girls in the campus ministry. And it wasn't until she told somebody about what was going on that it all came out, and his shame was known to all. But I tell you this story because even though the circumstances may be different, the pathology of sin. And the, the feelings that are involved are familiar to most of us. The New Testament talks about uh, 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 this kind of involvement in, in deeper and deeper discouragement and sin and, and uh, feeling trapped as losing heart. Literally in the Greek, it is to bat out. A phrase that we would say to cop out. It describes a condition where Compromise leads to, to feeling a separation from God, which just leads to more compromise, and, and you feel like your whole life is deteriorating, falling apart. It's going to happen in your marriage, where you're tired of the struggle, the disagreements. God has kept you together so far, but you're tired of the struggle. You want out you don't want to have to struggle so you come up with your own solution and you back off from your your spouse you just cut yourself off emotionally from your spouse seems to work at first feels like relief at first but eventually you find yourself empty and desperate and wanting out altogether maybe it is in the area of of uh, discipline with your teenage son or daughter you're tired of the struggle God has been there for you. But you don't want life to be like this. And so you just let them go. You drop out of the parenting job. Maybe in in the area of finances. God's been taking care of you. You've been getting by so far, but just barely. And you're wanting some breathing space. You're wanting some room. So you fudge just a little on those taxes. Or you compromise your, your integrity there in that, that deal at work. Or maybe your struggles in the area of sexual lust. And those little compromises are getting bigger and bigger. Whatever the specifics, that sense of, of compromise, that sense of doing what you know isn't right, starts out not feeling so bad. Feeling reasonable. In fact, often it feels like the only reasonable solution. But then as you grow, get deeper and deeper, you feel more and more distant from God. Maybe you've tried to make up for it by throwing yourself into ministry, by being zealous for God. Or maybe you've just quietly backed away, put your relationship with God on hold. Whatever your response, you know what that feels like. It feels like drowning. Listen to how it felt to David. Let me just read the first five verses of our psalm, Psalm 69. David says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not take away. You know my folly, O oh God. My guilt is not hidden from you. David says he feels like he's drowning. He says the the water has come up to his neck. Literally in Hebrew, it's the water has come up to his soul, his nefesh, his, his breath. His life. A time when I was on a mission in the Philippines, we were out on this small island, and I uh, decided I wanted to go out into the ocean. I was rowing this little canoe out there, went out to where some fishermen had put in their nets, and I was looking around. It was probably 200, 250 yards out into the ocean. And I looked around a little bit, and then I came back, and I was on my way back in, and this wave just simply went over the, the uh, canoe thing filled with water and just disappeared out from under me. Just bloop. And all of a sudden I'm swimming. I'm still about 200 yards out. Swimming for shore against the tide. Well, I'm still about 50 yards out. I was shot. I was tired. And I looked and I could see through the clear water a shoal. Just about high enough for me to stand on on tippy toe. And so I said, thank you, God. Got over the top of it. Went, put my foot down and was immediately racked by pain. I put my foot right on this huge sea urchin with all these poisonous spines sticking up, and the bottom of my foot was full of these stinging spines. But like I said, I was shot, so I had to rest. So I put my other foot down. Unfortunately, this one got to the rock, but just on my tiptoes with the water right at, at my mouth. And every time the ocean would swell, I had to, to jump up and come back down and jump up and come back down. I'm sure any second that I was going to take in a... Lung full of uh, salt water. I couldn't stay there very long. Wasn't real restful. And I ended up swimming the last 50 yards into the shore and laying face down on the sand for a while. But while I was out there trying to rest on that shoal, I felt the, the, the panic of feeling like I was just about to go under. Fighting for air. Feeling Desperate. David says that's exactly what his whole life has started to feel like. Only he says his feet are stuck in the mire at the bottom and he can't rise up at all. He's worn out. He's too tired even to call for help. His eyes are burning. He can't see God anywhere. Things are getting completely out of control. He says, I'm forced to restore what I didn't take away. The the consequences of his, his his. Actions are getting beyond his control, things that he didn't even do he's having to, to, to make up for. The chain reaction of his compromise has made his whole life feel like it's collapsing around him. Again, this is what it feels like when we've been sucked into that vortex of, of compromise. This is how it feels, like it's, it's too hard to call out for God anymore. He just won't do any good. He's nowhere to be seen. Quite honestly, it's not too hard. It's just our guilt that makes it feel like it is. We feel guilty and, and we are afraid to turn to God. And it's, so often it's not the difficulty that exhausts us. It's the guilt. About uh, 30 years ago, uh, Carl Minager the the famous psychiatrist at Meninger Clinic. Um, He said, referring to his patients who uh, were there with what we used to call a a mental breakdown, but he said, if I could convince the patients in my hospital that their sins are forgiven, 75% of them would walk out the next day. You see, it's guilt that exhausts us. It depletes our life and our energy. It draws us toward despair. And our entire society is drowning in guilt. Eric Fromm wrote, It is indeed amazing that in as fundamentally an irreligious culture as ours, the sense of guilt should be so widespread and deep-rooted as it is poet Lord Byron talking about his own feelings of despair of, of, of guilt he wrote the thorns I have reaped are of the tree I planted they have torn me and I bleed I should have known what fruit would spring from such a tree you see it's guilt that drives us crazy there's a couple of incidents in my own life that uh, just make this so obvious to me Shortly after I became a Christian back in 1972, I was studying in Israel. And during a break in classes, I decided to rent a car, drive down to the Gulf of Elat, and do some exploring out in the Sinai. So I did this. Unfortunately, I got lost, ended up on the western side of the peninsula where the Egyptians and the Israelis happened to be fighting a war at the time. And I was lost. Out of gas, no idea where I was. I ended up being taken to an Israeli uh, army headquarters. The commander, who I'm sure was an American before he was an Israeli, because his English was so perfect. Anyway, he came out and he said, uh, I'm sorry, we can't spare any petrol. We're fighting war over here. And he stuck his head in my window and looked at the gas gauge. And he told one of his soldiers to give me a 10 liter uh, can of, of petrol. We got the gas into the car. They told me how to get back to Sharm El Sheikh, told me what road to take, and I was off. And during that entire experience, I wasn't afraid. I was completely at peace. Now, Obviously, I was uh, young and stupid. <laughs> but more than that, I was confident that God was taking care of me. My relationship with him was clean, and I knew that he, he had his eyes on me, that he was taking care of me, and I was able to trust him, and I was even able to sing as I drove along. But a couple months ago, I was going through a time of spiritual struggle. I was uh, dealing with some things I was doing in my life, some compromises like what we've been talking about here, some things I just didn't even want to look at, I didn't want to face, that they were wrong. And I had an appointment with somebody over on the other end of town, on the north end. So I headed out over there with plenty of time. Thought I knew where their house was. And as I began driving up and down all those numbered streets that look exactly the same to those of us that live on the west end, I began to go nuts. As I got later and later, my frustration and anxiety built until the point that I was almost out of control. I was raving as I was driving up the same streets over and over again, looking for that stupid house. Well, obviously, my response was not uh, relative to the difficulty of the situation. I was far safer on the North End driving around than I was out in the middle of the Sinai Desert, lost and out of gas. If, my, if, the, if the, my temper had been dictated by the circumstances, I would have been far more anxious there. But you see, my temper was dictated by the condition of my heart. My guilt, my resistance to God is what led to me to be overwhelmed and anxious. And so often, when we feel like we're drowning... When we feel like our world is out of control. Often it's because we're running away from facing those compromises, big or small. That have worked their way into our lives. Made us feel distant from God. Cut off and confused. That are drawing us down. And we conclude it won't do any good to call out to God. He's nowhere to be seen. Again, that's exactly how it felt to David. But David did what he had to do. He does call out to God. Now, unfortunately, I don't have time in a psalm this large to go through verse by verse like I like to. But let me try to give you some of the flow. Starting with verse 5, where David admits his fault. And he recognizes that God has known it all along. Verse 5, he says, You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. David realizes he's been playing games here, thinking that he's hiding from God. That if he covers up well, God won't notice his compromise. If he justifies it and excuses it, God will, will go along with the ruse. He says, nah, that's not true. And David's ready to look at what he's done. He refers to his behavior as folly. Folly uh, literally means to act like a fool. Back in, um, in Psalm 14, David says, A fool says in his heart, there is no God. And David is acknowledging and admitting That he has been acting as if he believed in his heart that there is no God. He's been trying to act as if God didn't exist. He's been trying to ignore God. Then David is ready to face the fact that his behavior affects others. That he's been damaging others. Look at verse 6. He says, May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. You see, his sin affects others. He had damaged his men. He had damaged his family. He damages the whole body. You know, one of the reasons we fight so hard not to to admit our foolishness and our sin is because we don't want to face the fact that we are actually hurting other people. But we are. If you're a father... Everything you do affects the spiritual health of your wife, children, sons, and daughters. You may not see how, but it does. But in the same way, if you're a wife or a mother or a son or a daughter, your sin affects the whole family. It affects the whole body of Christ. And on top of that, it damages our witness, our testimony. David alludes to this in verses 10 through 12, he talks about people laughing at his devotion to God, scorning him. We lose our credibility. The world begins to look at us like hypocrites. When we cry out to God, it is critical that we face things as they are, that we face that our sin is wrong, that it's foolishness, and that we are damaging other people. When we cover up justify, minimize, blame others, blame our circumstances, somehow excuse what we're doing. We never come to God openly, laying ourselves open before Him. And as a result, we cannot be freed from that deep sense of inner guilt. Nothing short of open, honest self-exposing confession lets God into that deepest part of our being where that guilt resides. Now, this needn't be a long, drawn-out ordeal. And it shouldn't be a morbid, self-punishing, pouring out of contempt on ourselves. That's entirely counterproductive. But it does need to be honestly, responsibly, accepting responsibility For our behavior, for our choices, for our decision, our foolishness in disregarding God and the damage that we're doing to others. Now when David admits this, when David takes responsibility, it doesn't mean he's denying that others have hurt him. In fact, the the bulk of the middle of this psalm is David talking about that hurt, how others have treated him cruelly and unjustly and, and the, the pain that's been involved in the way that others have treated him he says even his brothers have turned on him and the people that he expected to find sympathy from they turned on him treated him harshly look at verse 19, 20 he says you know how I am scorned that word scorn means to speak harshly to to put down you know how I'm put down disgraced and shamed all my enemies are before you the term enemy simply means those that are hostile toward you, those that hurt you. I don't think David is talking here about his enemies as we would call enemies. I think he's talking about his friends and his family who he's turned to but have cut him, have hurt him, have come at him and are hostile to him. Because look at verse 20. He says, Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy... But there was none for comforters, but I found none. You know, so often when we're, when we're drowning because of our compromises and our sin, and we feel like our world is collapsed, and we turn to a brother or sister in Christ thinking we'll get encouragement and comfort, they attack. They, 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 they put us down. They come at us and hurt us rather than giving us encouragement and comfort. The church fails us. And that hurts. Look at verse 26. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. And this hurts, David, to know that there's no one out there to support and encourage him. Verse 29. I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. See, David is not does not shy away from saying, there have been people who are treating me unjustly. There are people who have damaged and wounded me. There are people who hurt me deeply and disappoint me. But he never uses that to excuse and justify his own behavior, his own decisions. See, that distinction is important. We acknowledge that others hurt us, that they wound us, that they disappoint us, but we take responsibility For our own decisions, our own responses, our own copping out and compromising in the midst of the struggle. Well, David obviously can't turn to his friends or his family, but he's already found someone he can turn to. Back up to verse 13. This is really the heart of the psalm. Verse 13, he says, But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, In your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. David humbly turns to God. Reminds himself of God's character. He doesn't start demanding from God. He doesn't try to use God's word as a club to force God to fit his own schedule. He simply and humbly turns to God and he says, In your own time, God, because of your loving character... Be my sure salvation. You see, David is confident. He is sure that God will save him because that's the kind of God God is. Verse 14. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of Your love. In Your great mercy, Turn to me. See, David's hope is not in his own righteousness, not in his own ability to cover up what he's done and to excuse it and to justify it. His hope is God's love, God's mercy, God's character. Well, that's really what this psalm is all about. There's one more point that I really want to look at from this psalm. I want to look at how the psalm ends. You know, so often when I have felt like I was sinking, when my compromises and my sins have led me to feel like my world is falling apart, then I just wallow in it. I become overwhelmed with self-pity and just stay there saying, oh, how horrible life is. David doesn't do that. He doesn't just wallow in his, his sin and his foolishness. And he doesn't just keep pleading for God, please forgive me, please forgive me. Now David moves on to praising God. Starting in verse 30. I will praise God's name in song and glorify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and its hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise His captive people. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then the people will settle there and possess it. The children of His servants will inherit it. And those who love His name will dwell there. See, this is the antidote to sin and the morass of guilt. And just the bog that we find ourselves in. It's to turn humbly to God. Trust His character that He is the Savior. Pour your heart out in confession to Him and then believe Him that He has forgiven you. And move to praising Him for His character. You see, God isn't looking for us to do penance. That's not what pleases Him. He isn't looking for us to get involved in some frantic religious activity, offering sacrifices. That's what He's talking about with the ox and the bull. To somehow make it up to God. Somehow how undo what we've done and and make it all okay. He's not looking for that. He is looking for us to believe Him. To trust Him enough to accept His forgiveness. To believe that enough... To let that move us into song, into worship, into praise. And the impact on others will be to build them up, to encourage them, to lift their hearts to life, to strengthen their grip on God and His promises, to draw them into worship of God and His character and His grace. The way we can never undo what we have done, but the way we move beyond it, the way we delight God, the way we honor Him and are of true service to others is to trust Him enough to accept His forgiveness and to praise Him. Now, I want to uh, drive the, the the point of this whole psalm home by looking at, at, at these principles in the New Testament. You know, as we study David, I am impressed over and over How well he grasped these principles without ever having had the opportunity to see how Jesus made it all possible. In Romans 8, Paul refers to this slide into deeper and deeper sin and despair as the law of sin and death. See, what we've been looking at in the life of David is the weakness of his flesh, weary of the struggle. And so he began to cop out begin to compromise. And as a result, he felt cut off from God. And so he didn't turn back to God. And things just got worse and worse until he felt like he was drowning. See, that is the cycle of sin and death. We sin, and so we are cut off from God. Romans 6, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. And spiritual death is is to be cut off from god separation from god so sin alienates us from god and being cut off from god we're left to ourselves without his wisdom without his guidance without his strength to do what is right which means inevitably we sin more which means we're further alienated from god and more and more helpless against sin. It's a downward spiral. Sin leads to death, which leads to more sin, which leads to a more profound sense of death, and so on and so on. There's no way out. But Paul tells us that God has made a way out. Listen to Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. See, a lot of people think that the way that God has broken the cycle of sin and death is that once you become a Christian, you stop sinning. You don't sin, therefore you don't die. cycle's broken. That just isn't true. We still sin. In fact, Romans 7, Paul has been talking about his own struggles and failures, uh, the the weakness and woundedness of his own flesh, how as much as he wants to do what's right and honor God, he still sins, he still cops out, he still compromises, and it frustrates him. So how is the cycle broken? We still sin. Well, listen again. There is no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. We sin, but there is no death, no separation from God. Because we accept Jesus Christ and His death for us on the cross, He died in our place so that we no longer die. We sin, but there's no death, no separation. His spirit, the spirit of life, is in us. And we can turn to Him immediately for forgiveness and comfort and guidance. There needn't be a moment's separation. But unfortunately, we don't often believe this. We sin, so we feel guilty. We feel condemned, and so we turn away from God because we're sure that He will condemn us too. That's the point of the whole gospel. God has already condemned His Son so that He can freely accept us. See, rather than covering up and hiding our sin and our foolishness, rather than excusing and blaming and minimizing and all the other stuff we do, turn to Him simply and confess it. It's better to confess too much than too little confess it and then believe him when he says we are forgiven and worship him for what he has done walk on with him pouring out your heart your frustration at the weakness of your flesh or the woundedness that others have done to you but praise him for the forgiveness that he has given you in Christ Jesus the grace that he has extended there's an old uh, fable about Martin Luther How the devil came to him one day with this long list of sins. And began reading them off to Luther one at a time to condemn him. And when Satan gets to the end of the list, Luther looks at him and says, I think you missed a few. And he adds a couple more to the bottom of the list. And then he says, now take red ink and write across the entire list. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And there was nothing The devil could say to that. I can remember when I first grasped this in my own life. There was a sin I had been struggling with for years actually, and I'd been losing to it over and over. And it was so frustrating. I remember driving down the road pounding on my steering wheel in frustration. It hurt so bad. In fact, sometimes I thought if it didn't hurt bad, that was presumptuous. That that was somehow showing that I didn't take the sin seriously. That was irresponsible. So I'd make sure I hurt bad. And I'd get so frustrated. Then I'd start resenting. God, how come I have to struggle with this? How come I have to deal with this? Why don't you take it away, God? With time, I grew weary. A sense of depression would follow a sense of alienation from God. And I grew more and more weary until I felt like I was being sucked down and drowned. And one, time, one day I, I just realized what was going on here. You know, the sin itself was a very short thing, but the, the sense of self-contempt and depression would last for days. The sense of alienation from God would sometimes last for weeks. Why did I think that I could make up for one failure? By adding to it a second. Why did I think that if I gave the enemy one victory, I could make it better by giving a second victory? By refusing to believe God when he said that I'm forgiven in Christ? By turning away from God, by pouring contempt on myself? I became determined not to give the enemy one more second of victory than was necessary. Now at first, uh, the sin didn't go away, didn't decrease in its and it's force in my life, I would still sin. But instead of berating myself, instead of turning away from God, I turned to God. I said, yes, I did sin. And then I would accept what God has done in Jesus Christ. I would accept His forgiveness, and I would begin to praise Him for His grace in Christ. Quite honestly, emotionally, that felt all wrong. It didn't feel appropriate felt presumptuous, but with time I learned to praise Him from my heart for His grace in Christ. You see, what could have led me away from God was leading me to God. What Satan intended for death because of Jesus Christ led to life. Eventually, the sin lessened in its power in my life and I began to get more and more victory until it was gone. I'm convinced the enemy lost his motivation. God had turned the victory around on him. Eventually, even the temptation became a, a motivation to praise. Now, let me urge you, take the victory away from the enemy. Turn it around on him. You see, his whole motive And wanting you to sin is to separate you from God. That's death. That's spiritual death. That's the power of sin. But God has defeated the power of sin. Why do what the enemy wants? Instead, believe God when He says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Turn to Him. Accept His forgiveness and praise Him. Don't deny your sins. Don't cover them up. Don't minimize them. Don't try to hide your eyes from the damage you've done to others as a result. But don't wallow in that either. Don't let the enemy drag you down and away with guilt. You will sin. There will be times of compromise. There will be times of copping out. But rather than letting sin poison your life, take the antidote. Turn to God. And worship Him for His grace in Christ Jesus. Worship is the antidote to sin. Nothing else works. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that we often don't believe You. That we want to change ourselves through uh, punishing ourselves, through running from You, through any other means that we can, rather than believing You and turning to You and accepting Your grace. Lord, uh, I pray that You would give us the courage to trust You, to face our folly, our foolishness, to admit that we are damaging others, to see our compromises For what they are. They're not reasonable solutions. They're not reasonable compromises. They're damaging. They're pulling us away. They're ruining our testimony. But Lord help us when we see that. Not to uh, become victims of the enemy and his accusations. But to glory in your grace. in Christ Jesus. To cling to the cross. To bathe in that blood. With your head still. Bowed, and your eyes still closed, if there are some of you here who have never placed your life in Christ, then you've never been free from that deep sense of inner guilt. You have no way out of the cycle of the law of sin and death. Let me urge you this morning to turn to God through Christ to accept what Jesus Christ has done on the cross in payment for your sins. Face those sins that you have disregarded God, that you have been damaging others. Then turn to God and ask Him to write across those sins. The blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. Let Him into your deepest being where He can cleanse out that sense of guilt and give you a sense of freedom and of peace that you've never had before. That's his desire. That's what he wants to give you. Just say to him, Lord God, I accept the sacrifice of your son. I admit that I am a sinner, that I've disregarded you. And I accept your forgiveness. Now worship him that that has been done it has been accomplished you may not feel like it but trust him enough to praise him because he said it's true amen